Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Anne and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. Well, obviously, 2020, the focus in the healthcare industry has been on the pandemic, but the threat of cancer remains significant. Some estimates suggest more than 42,000 people will die from breast cancer alone this year, and more than 275,000 new cases will be diagnosed. But the good news is that millions are surviving. Today on Financially Speaking, with my partner Ann Trainer and I will be talking with Ali Rogan, who's a foreign affairs producer with PBS NewsHour, who's just released a new book, Beat Cancer Like a Boss, 30 Powerful Stories, a book filled with raw stories of hope, resilience, and strength. Ali has her own personal story from a decade ago when she was 20 that she shares as well in the new book, which is published by Diversion. Welcome, Ali. First of all, thank you for taking time today. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Sure, sure. Well, you've written a very personal story that includes what happened with you. So if it's okay, let's start by having you share your experience that eventually led you to writing this inspiring book. I know it all began when when, when your father, Hall of Fame drummer Max Weinberg, tested positive himself for the, the BRCA1 gene as he was concerned after your aunt passed away. And I guess your cousin was diagnosed with uh, with breast cancer around 20, age 20. So that's a lot to take in at once. So how, how did you handle that at first? Yeah, that all happened when my dad got tested, my aunt passed away of ovarian cancer, and one of her daughters had breast cancer. That all happened actually several years before my parents came to me and disclosed to me that my father was a carrier of this mutation. And so they sort of had to struggle along with it, I think, alone. And my dad downplays it now, but I can't imagine as a parent sitting on that information and knowing that at some point you're going to have to talk to your child about that serious of a health situation and basically leave it up to them to decide what they want to do. That was a lot, I think, for them to, to, to handle. So when I was around 18, I think, a few years after all of that had happened, my parents sat me down and said, you know, your dad tested positive for this and you can decide what it is you want to do if you want to get tested or if you just want to keep going about your life. And, and I'm the kind of person that takes action right away and tries to fix things. So I said, oh, of course, I'm going to get tested. And I was going to NYU at the time. It must have been a little later. I must have been like 19, I think, um, when they told me because I was already a junior when I got Mm. tested and went to the genetic counselor, sat down, gave her all my information. Turns out I'm a very I was a very good candidate for it, both because I had a family history of the gene and because I'm of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage on my dad's side. That community also has a high proclivity. So I got tested a couple of weeks later. I went back to the genetic counselor. She disclosed to me the results. But I felt that she did not present to me all of my options in a thorough way. She did not even mention the notion that I could have a preventative double mastectomy. That was just something that didn't come up. Uh, And I was, at that point, a senior in college. And I guess it was because she thought I was too young 
But that is ultimately what I decided to do. It was the right decision for me. So I felt very strongly that there just wasn't enough known about this genetic mutation. It was a relatively new thing that you can be tested for. And also there just wasn't that much awareness about it. So at many points, I felt alone during this process. Um, It's starting with following my test results and not really knowing what to do going out of that consultation. I luckily was able to meet with other doctors and figure out, you know, the option that I wanted to go with. But ultimately, I did feel very alone. There weren't that many people with putting famous faces on the mutation at that point. Sure. A few years later is when Angelina Jolie came out and shared her story in the New York Times. And that was very, very inspiring to me and a lot of other so-called pre-vivers. Mm-hmm. And that's really what spurred me to write this book, to create a community of accomplished, powerful women whose stories inspire us in different ways and just have them tell their stories about how they got through breast cancer. Because I really do think when it comes to breast cancer or any other disease, community matters. It's important to have access to stories of people that are similar to yours. We can all learn from them and we, we get comfort from them. Mm-hmm. So true. It is true. But I, you know what struck me, Allie, about it all was just your ability to share such a personal story. I feel like sometimes, even if I'm talking to my doctor, I find it hard, you know, mm-hmm. to talk about things like that and let alone share it with the world. And I guess maybe women sometimes have this, you know, people think that we talk about everything, but I don't know. I don't think a lot of women necessarily talk about their bodies that much, you know, with other women. So I just thought that was really impressive on your part and on the women in the book. And I wonder, did you approach anyone, not that you would say who it was or anything, but that was reluctant or said no outright, or were all of these women driven like you were for this other purpose, like to share, to help others, you know, because you, because you would wish that for yourself, you know? Yeah. Basically everybody who I reached out to, I mean, there was, there were certainly lots of people who just didn't respond or said, no, thank you. And didn't really give me a reason, but everybody who ended up talking with me for the book was incredibly willing to be open and vulnerable and candid with their stories. I think because they came from the same position that I did, which is knowing that the most powerful gift we can give to other people going through this is simply sharing our story because Mm -hmm. it makes people feel less alone and it helps. You know, I know that I benefited from the very few resources that were out there. When I was going through my experience, there are 10 years later, many more now, but um, it's really the one thing that we can do. And I mean, I think I come from an extremely privileged background. I had never been through a challenge like this. Um, Mm -hmm. before. I'm lucky not to have gone through one since. And so to me, it seemed like the very least I could do to share Mm -hmm. my story and to be an open book and help people, whether it's through bringing this book out to the world or meeting with other women who are grappling with these decisions. I do that all the Mm -hmm. time. Not so much now because of the pandemic, but I think the more I can be candid and share my experience, the better off other people can be. And did you, just one other question, you know, again, as a woman, did you have to really step out of your comfort zone even to approach these women? Because even that, I would think, you know, making those calls might be a little challenging. No, I'm a storyteller. That's Mm. what I do for work. And so it was a very natural fit for me. And that's sort of why actually I felt that I was qualified to tell these stories. Of course, you know, I am not 
a breast cancer survivor. I've never had breast cancer. I probably won't have breast cancer, which I'm very lucky. I was able to look into my genetic future and take action. But this is what I do. And there's no more important story to me than that of people who have gotten through a big challenge. And so I just think it's a skill of mine and I was happy to put it to work in this way. Mm -hmm. We tend to focus on financial topics one way or another on this podcast. And, you know, I was thinking about it while I was reading the book and obviously there's always so much discussion going on about ACA and healthcare. And, you know, and I'm wondering if this type of, if the type of surgery you had to begin with, is that considered elective? Mm-hmm. And if so, what type of insurance coverage, if any, most women could expect if they were faced with this situation? That's a great question. I don't know a whole lot of specifics about what it qualifies as now. When I was going through my experience, it was actually months after the Affordable Care Act became law. And so I was very lucky that my mutation was never considered a pre-existing condition. Insurance, I think, covered a lot. Of, I mean, it covered the mastectomy. To be honest with you, I have to look back at my records because luckily, I mean, you know, this is another thing that I was very lucky that my parents were able to pay for all of this. So it wasn't really a struggle that we had to go through. And so right now, yeah, I just don't. It didn't, don't come, really it didn't come up with anyone in the book specifically about the BRCA gene, if that's covered. Because, you know, the financial burden of any major disease is is, is brutal and cancer. Did you get into that at all in in the book with anybody? Yeah, absolutely. A couple things. On the issue of pre-existing conditions, there were certainly a lot of women who had to struggle with the financial impact of having breast cancer and having their insurance coverage be affected prior to the ACA being passed. Shauna Martin, who's one of the incredible women, she's an entrepreneur. She started a green juice company following her breast cancer diagnosis. But before she made that big career switch, she was a lawyer. And she had switched to a boutique law firm just before she was diagnosed. And she actually had to leave the law firm because her having breast cancer jacked up the rates of everybody else in the company. And they were such a small firm that simply could not keep her on the payroll. So she had to go and find work with a, you know, massive law firm all the way in Dallas when she was in Houston, I think. There are also um, in the book, because so many of the women in this book have the financial resources that are associated with success in business, as so many of them have achieved, It was very important to me to provide at least some resources for women who don't have those access to those sorts of funds, because certainly most of the people in this country do not. And, you know, that's an issue that maybe for another time in another podcast we can get into. But but there is a cycle, which I'm sure you are familiar with. There's a cycle of financial toxicity that can take place following a cancer diagnosis, because for a lot of people, they're able to work out schedules for their medical loans. Um, There are ways to do that. But what ends up happening is it's not really those bills that are the killers. It's the rent and your car payments that pile up. And if you don't work somewhere with great medical leave policies, or you've run out your FMLA, and you're now just not receiving any funds, those are the payments that become due right away. And if you default on those, those can have immediate effects on your life. And 
then it just digs you into a deeper and deeper hole. So there are wonderful organizations that exist specifically to help lessen that cycle of financial toxicity. One of them in the book, I interview the founder. Her name is Molly McDonald. She started a group called the Pink Fund when she herself found herself in this situation where basically due to her breast cancer diagnosis, she had also been going through a divorce. And so a lot was up in the air financially. And she ended up, you know, having to go to um, food banks to survive and to feed her family. And she realized that the thing that, again, really affected her were things like making her car payments. And, you know, it ended up that her car was repossessed. So resources like that do exist to help flatten the burden that is associated with with breast cancer. Mm, Mm. Great. Well, thanks for addressing that. It is. It's a it's incredible, incredible huge issue. Right. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something just then about all the, a lot of these women that you interviewed, that you include their stories, they're all very accomplished or, or most, you know, very successful, but it was interesting how you structured the book. I thought, you know, with kind of the creatives like Cheryl Crow and Edie Falco, and then the representatives, Heidi Camp. So what what made you decide to choose that structure or that manner of, of putting the stories together? Yeah, it was more besides all having breast cancer, there weren't a lot of common themes with these women because each breast cancer's experience is they're like snowflakes, no two are alike. Mm-hmm. And so structuring it so that you go through, you know, by basically professions broadly, was perhaps a bit of an artificial construction, but it was a way to structure the book that made sense because there are certain other little anecdotal things that connect these stories, such as some commonalities. There's some commonality, but that was really just sort of the overarching theme that allowed me to keep these stories going without trying Mm -hmm. too hard to to give them all connective tissue. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. That makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, Ali, when I was in my early twenties, uh, finishing up and, and 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 after going to George Washington in D.C., I had the really great opportunity as my first job to work for Larry King on his national radio show, and and I met a lot of amazing people in all walks of life. But journalists were the ones I, I were particularly interested in, and fortunately for me, one of them happened to be Cokie Roberts, who was basically. Hmm. She basically was NPR at the time. She hadn't gone to ABC at that point. And I don't want to give a lot away, but you chose to start the book with your personal story with Koki, who you interviewed. And I thought maybe you could share with our audience that story and, and kind of why it really was the perfect way to begin the journey that, that you take everyone through in this book. Yeah, absolutely. The title of the book is Beat Breast Cancer Like a Boss, but I wanted to make very clear in the beginning of the book that when I say beat, I don't mean simply going into remission and remaining cancer-free for the rest of your life. That is a very, very limiting definition of beating a disease. And it leaves out so many people in this community, including metastatic women whose uh, cancer has progressed. There is no cure for that at the moment. And also people dealing with multiple recurrences. And breast cancer is beating it isn't just about getting through treatment. The mental toll of breast cancer lasts years. 
sometimes your entire life thinking, what is my next mammogram going to show? Am I going to go through this again? It's called scansiety. And so what I wanted to do is redefine what it means to beat breast cancer, because I believe that anybody who is picking their head up off the pillow every morning and going throughout their day as normally as possible is beating breast cancer. It is a daily struggle. And there's so much value in simply spending time with the people you love, doing work, enjoying your hobbies, even even if it's something as simple as like watching your favorite TV show. Those are all ways to beat breast cancer. And so segueing to Koki Roberts, Koki, to me, embodied that more than anybody, because when I interviewed her, it was about her previous cancer fight. And to me, at the time when I was interviewing her, I felt okay, she's been through it. She is a survivor. That's it. Her breast cancer is in her rearview mirror. And she entertained my questions for a full hour about her previous fight. And what I didn't know at the time was that she had recently found out that her cancer had returned and it had spread throughout her body and it was very serious. But she, did, she didn't let that affect her at all in this interview. She spoke eloquently and happily about what she had learned and about how it's so important to her to, you know, during that time to spend time with her, her loved ones, to do work that she was passionate about. And so, of course, a few years later, as I was finishing up the book, the news came out that Cookie had passed away because of complications due to breast cancer. And so to me, that was when I realized fully what she had been going through when we talked and how remarkable it was that she could live in the moment like that. And so when I think about beating breast cancer, nobody embodies that more than Cokie Roberts. She beat breast cancer every single day simply by not letting it get her down. I mean, when I interviewed her, it was in her office at ABC News. She was working. She was happy. And that's how she spent every single day of her life. So the notion that she didn't beat breast cancer because she ultimately died of it is just incorrect to me. And so that's why it's so important to me that we redefine what it means. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you included that story. I think it was just so, so touching. And 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 like you say, the 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 main point is how many women just continue to fight and yeah. can continue to work. Ann and I, I'm just thinking of a colleague of ours that we lost in our office last year, who really had that same kind of resilience mm-hmm. and kept working mm-hmm. and fighting and things with her. Her kids wanted to be there for you know the kids' college or high school graduation. One of them, and mm-hmm. it's just 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 horrible. Yeah, but, amazing. It's yeah. amazing to witness. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Mitch started off that question by saying he was in his twenties in DC, you know, interning for Larry King, probably having, you know, the time of his life. And yeah. when you started the question, I heard you say in my twenties, I, I thought of you, Allie. And how, when you started this story, you know, you were 18, 19 years old being faced with this news and these decisions while probably your peers, the hardest thing they're thinking about is what they're going to do when they graduate, you know, and here you're making these major decisions and people talking to you about, you know, think now about your family planning. And if you want to have kids, I mean, that's a lot. And I just wonder not only what it was like then, but, and this might be a little cliche, but how that then shaped the path you've been on for the last 10 plus years and decisions you've made and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was lucky that up until that point, I had never faced any sort of challenge like this. I've lived a charmed life. 
I've been on the road with the E Street Band and, you know, my parents have pulled <laughs> me out of charmed. school to go travel the world. Yep. And, you yeah. know, literally, I mean, I don't, you know, there's no reason to downplay that. I have been incredibly blessed. And so this yeah. was really the first time that I had ever been faced with my own mortality or anything like that, not to be over dramatic. At but, 19 you know, years old, though. Right. I mean, it's yeah. not like. Yeah, no, and I was, but, I was super young. Yeah. But, you know, I always approached it like this. I don't know. There's some. I believe in karma and I, I believe that I do believe that we're only given challenges that we can face. And I just felt like, you know what, like, fine. If this is like the, the challenge that I'm getting, hopefully I don't face any other health challenges that are worse because there are mm-hmm. lots and lots that are worse, but like, I can, I can do this. This is nothing. And that's really, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be flippant about how I went through it, there was a little bit of, right. of fear at the beginning. But once I made up my mind to have a double mastectomy, I just put one foot in front of the other and just got through it. And ultimately, and again, I don't, I don't say this to sound glib, but I really viewed it as basically like a slightly more intense boob job because mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. had it under my control and I could remove my breasts and get new ones and go a little bigger <laughs> and it ended up just being like, you know, yeah, the surgeries were tough, mm-hmm. but such a positive experience because I was able to do everything on my terms. So right. yes, I was young. Yes. I joke that I, I got my mastectomy done over spring break when my peers usually are, you know, flashing their, their boobs yeah. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> on vacation in Florida. But <laughs> I don't know. I think everybody at a certain age, you know, lots of people face worse things than I do growing up. And so I don't, I don't think of it that I went through anything probably more strenuous than a lot of my peers do. And simply they don't talk about it, which is their prerogative. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a major point that you make throughout your book about how each woman that you spoke to, certainly they made their own decision on how to handle this horrible thing and that they're dealing with. And I guess your point, if I read correctly, is that there, you know, there really is no right or wrong way to deal with breast cancer. Absolutely. And I think people sometimes feel a lot of pressure to do the right thing when it comes to treatment and screening and how to live your life and how to tell your family. And there's one story in the book, Dr. Marissa Weiss, who herself is a breast doctor and then was diagnosed with breast cancer. And a lot of her patients were asking her, well, you know, what did you do? Because there was this assumption that like, well, whatever you did, I want to do because you're right. the doctor. So you did it the right way. And so she had to explain to a lot of them, no, you have to find what works for you. You know, there are many different types of breast cancer and there are many different ways to deal with it, including, and, and every aspect of the battle is something that really every woman has to figure out how she wants to deal with it, which is in and of itself a major, major challenge because, I mean, it's not just about choosing your treatment. It's about how many people do you want to tell? Do you want to let the whole neighborhood know? Or do you want to, you know, just tell your very, very close circle of loved ones? How much help do you want to accept? And how do you handle your mental health when you're going through something? So choosing the right way to do it for you is essential to getting through it in the easiest way possible, because mm-hmm. the thing that worked for your friend who had breast cancer is not necessarily going to work for you. And there should be no pressure in thinking you have to adhere to some standard. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
when I was reading about, and I think you mentioned it too, that part of the reason you wrote the book was that there were so few resources when you were going through this, that you would have liked to have had something, you know, to give you more of maybe an idea of what you had to face or what your options were, all these different things. And that's kind of why you put this compilation together. So, you know, for the listeners, again, about the book, and hopefully everyone's going to buy the book and certainly give it to people that I'm sure this would be a tremendous, tremendous resource to. But if there were there one or two lessons that come to the top of your mind after interviewing all these women that are sort of like, wow, or aha, you know, like if, if I had, I wish I had heard that 10 years ago, it might be hard to just pick one or two, but... Number one is that it is essential to be your own strongest advocate when you're meeting with your doctors. In so many cases, we are inclined to put doctors on a pedestal and not question their recommendations and not challenge what they're saying to us. That was certainly my experience when I met with my genetic counselor. I didn't push back and say, well, is there anything else I can do to help prevent breast cancer? You're not really giving Mm -hmm. me many options. And so that is something that I think many of the women in the book experience, even though these are the most powerful, accomplished women mm-hmm. out there who are used to being direct and right, very right. but these were not necessarily, you know, they treated these situations differently. And I think to a large extent, we have to be more willing to question Speak our doctors, up. challenge them because mm-hmm. they might leave something out. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because they're human or they might not think you want to know more. So. Right. It needs to be a dialogue. That's number one. And number two is that it's incredibly important to spend time thinking about ways to assert your control over your life because cancer has a tendency to take over. Mm. And it's really essential that you find ways to, you know, we're so used to, I think, you know, at least I know I am, and I think a lot of women in the book are working harder at a problem and having it go away. And that's not how cancer responds. You can't just spend another hour at the office and have your cancer go away. You have to just kind of sit back and let it happen to you. But there are ways to not feel like everything around you is slipping out of your control. One woman had a strategy of writing down all her chemotherapy appointments and checking them off one by one so that she could feel like she was getting things done on a to-do list. Mm-hmm. Book is full of practical uh, tips like that that might work for you, or you might come up with your own. And I hope that people who do are willing to share those with other readers of the book. Right? Mm. No, that's so great. That's really great. So, Ali, you're a successful journalist, obviously with PBS. Spent time with MSNBC, ABC, Sirius. Beat cancer like a boss. Beat breast cancer like a boss is the first book you've written. Did you always plan or dream to, to, to write a book in general, or is the idea or the subject come to you, or was sort of kind of the other way around? Right. Yeah, I, I knew that I wanted to do something like this about this topic, because it's always been important to me since I've become a journalist and working in this field to tell these stories. I started doing it at NBC right after I graduated. Like right. The first couple stories that I wanted to do were about women with the BRCA gene. So you know, a book to me seemed like the logical next step. And in fact, I started talking about it with friends like shortly after I got to DC, but I didn't really know how to go about it. I realized that writing about the BRCA gene in particular is sort of a very, very niche thing. And then it might be helpful just to 
have a bunch of women tell their stories. And that was basically the idea that just came to me one day. Like, why don't I just do that? Why don't I just put all these stories down on paper? So that was around 2017 when I started just cold calling people. And luckily enough of them wanted to talk to me that I had the basis for a good book proposal. But of course, when you're writing a book proposal, you have to basically have half of the book written. And so that was its own <laughs> set of challenges, especially True. trying to get people to talk to me and being like, well, I don't have a book deal yet. I don't have a publisher, but can you talk to me anyway? And luckily enough of them were very, very gracious with their time. No, that's so, so critical. You think you're going to want to write another book as far as the experience of writing a book? I mean, that's uh, yeah, yeah. It's a big, it's a big, big thing. <laughs> it's a big commitment. It's yeah. a, this book definitely came together, you know, in the wee hours of the morning or late at night once everybody had gone home and I, you know, could like just sit down and have peace and quiet at the office. But I have thought about this and I think my next sort of gauntlet with the BRCA1 mutation is what I do with my ovaries because it also increases your risk of ovarian cancer. So I'm going to have to remove my ovaries in the next few years and that will put me into premature menopause. And so I think that is something that that women might want to benefit from sort of, I will be a 35 year old spy in the menopause world who can report out what it's like and what, you know, everybody else in my age group has to, uh, to look forward to. You're not going to be very popular anymore. No, no, no one's going to want to hear it, but then hopefully they'll all go home and like order the book because, you know, they know I have to go through it and they have questions. And tank tops. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of something that, and I think, you know, there's issues that come up of fertility, you know, that's, that's something and and sexuality. And so there's all these issues that are wrapped up in, of course, this mutation hits the two parts of the body that are, you know, most associated with, with being a female and what it Mm -hmm. means to be a woman. So there's all sorts Mm -hmm. of issues wrapped up in terms of body image, you know, femininity, all that stuff. So I do think there, I definitely have another book in me. Oh, I hope. Right. I, I certainly hope Great. so. I typically end the show asking you a question that Tim Ferriss has in Tribe of Mentors, which is just a question that I just think is one of the great questions. And he asked it of so many people out there. So you're going to get your chance to answer it. And basically, the question is, you're granted a giant billboard. And on that billboard, you can put any message that you want. What would it be yeah. and why? I love that question. I think as it relates to the book, the message on the billboard would be remember to schedule your mammogram, especially during this pandemic. A lot of people have been putting off preventative cancer screenings. So not just mammograms, but everything Mm -hmm. Uh, that makes a lot of sense because we're all afraid to leave our homes, let alone go into a doctor's office. And unfortunately though, there have been studies that show a spike in diagnoses at later stages because people are putting off their screenings and mammograms are still the number one way, in addition to doing your own self-exams at home, catching breast cancer and catching it early. And that is how we reduce the number of people who are taken too soon. So this is not the time to put our foot on the brakes in terms of getting preventative screenings. It's quite the opposite. This is the time to accelerate it, to make sure that we're healthy. So I would say, get those tatas checked. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might help catch their attention. Maybe Yeah, like, you know, that... 
that's that, that's certainly of all the billboard questions I've heard so far. I think that that one, the car will probably be <laughs> might go off the road. Um, <laughs> but you know, you brought up, you did bring up a really interesting point about during the pandemic and how I guess hopefully people are still doing the preventative care. I mean, we all know what it was like here in New Jersey where we are, and also in Washington where you are. That it was impossible to just do anything for the first. I don't know, 90 days. We, we, if I got out of the house, it was a, an accomplishment, let alone doctor's appointments and everything like that. But, but, you know, life has to go on and things like that are really, really a big deal. So I would imagine yeah. a lot of people are looking at that. I would say, and I would say also that it's particularly important among communities of color and those communities where a lot of times the resources simply don't exist in communities of color where it's harder to get to a breast specialist if you do, if you are able to go and get a clinical screening with a, with a, a general practitioner. And unfortunately, some of the organizations out there, I've talked to them, who are devoted to reaching people in medical deserts are reporting that they simply are not having the same ability to reach people because low-income people um, are, are simply, uh, you know, they have to go to work. But the first thing that they're not going to do is schedule those preventative care appointments. So it's become harder to reach those communities. Right. So it's just it's just essential that we redouble our efforts to make sure that everybody has access to preventative care. And, and access and the unequal application of it is, is something that is just horrifically imbalanced in this country. Black women in particular are 40% likelier to die of breast cancer than white women. And that is because largely they do not have equal access to preventative screening. So especially in this time when people are, are not doing these screenings, it is so essential that these services remain open and accessible to people of color. Absolutely. It's un- un- unacceptable. Unacceptable. Well, Ali, thank you so much for, for performing such a great service and telling these stories and, and, and sharing them with the world. You know, whether it's names we recognize, ones we don't, every single story really is worth reading and worth sharing. And the book, again, which we'll, we'll link to on all of our pages, show pages and everything is Beat Breast Cancer Like a Boss, 30 Powerful Stories Compiled, Edited, and Written by Our Wonderful Guest, today, Allie Rogan of PBS NewsHour. So thank you so much thank for you. that. And thank you a, so much. And I will add on a personal note, and my Springsteen fans who listen to this show a lot would just kill me for not saying this. So please tell your dad the new album and the documentary that the band made is truly magnificent. I've been fortunate to get a sneak peek at it because I spoke with Tom Zimney last week. Um, mm-hmm. So let him know, boy. He they just knocked it out of the park. I absolutely <laughs> will. Thank you, Allie, so much. Thanks to my partner and on my UBS advisory team and trainer for her help in joining me and helping me on this episode. Have a great week. Stay safe. And remember, when saving for your financial future, pay yourself first. <laughs> <laughs>